Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delight, show number 132. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. End of the month, so that means this we've got some art on the show as well. Do have a look at the art cover by SP Wilson. Fantastic. Got some great stuff coming up in today's show. Really excited about that, so I'll dive headlong and tell you a little bit about that. There isn't going to be an editorial, but there's going to be two little clips of news that I've just kind of discovered, So, and I think it's really important as well, so I'll mention those as the editorial, really. We have a fact article by JJ Campanella. Main fiction is The Rear Gun, a love story by James Allen Gardner. We have, he's back, Mike, only took six months. Fact article is Fiction Crawler 9, Matthew Sanborn Smith comes back with a cracking fiction crawler. Then we have a little audio accompaniment to the art cover by S.P. Wilson. He's put his thoughts down about the, the art cover and the story, James Allen Gardner one. So do look out for that. There you go, a fun-packed show for the end of the month. I do hope everyone is fine and well. Let's kick off then with the couple of bits of news. First one up is Peter Watts. Amy H. Sturgis put a little post on the forums announcing the news, so... I'll just read it out what Amy's got. On April 26, Canadian author Peter Watts was sentenced to a 60-day jail term suspended upon payment of court assessments. $68 state minimum cost, $60 victims' rights, and 1,000 court costs and 500 fines. Now, that actually might sound a lot of money and all things like that, but all things considered, he could have been in jail. So I think... Me, personally, you know, pay the money and run and just get back home and, you know, at least he is, he's coming back home and hopefully, you know, get these payments out of the way and just, you know, back to a normal life. Peter, I, you know what I mean? He, I think he's been through the mill with this, you know what I mean? This is just like a horrible thing to to go around and hopefully I'm going to try and get him on, you know, when everything blows up, we'll get him on and we'll get his thoughts because he's, he's turned out to be a lovely guy, you know what I mean? I really admire him, I admire his work and everything like that and... To just go through that kind of hell and back is horrible. And to be landed with all that kind of money, do you know what I mean? It's to pay all them fines and 60-day jail term, you know, suspended, all that kind of nonsense. Oh, nightmare. But at least he, can, he doesn't have to go to bloody jail for it. Do you know what I mean? So, Peter, pay the money and just come home. <laughs> Here's my bit of advice. <laughs> Run like hell. So that's the first little bit of news. Second little bit of news is I noticed... Another post on the forum, Larry Santoro mentioned Gene Wolfe. 
I'll read actually what Larry said, that his whole post as well, because it's easier coming, you know, it come from Larry than me trying to you know, muddle through it. This is Larry's words. He wanted to wait until he had a chance to speak with Terry Goulding, Jean's daughter, before posting this. Jean underwent heart valve repair and had four coronary bypasses this past Thursday. He seems to have gone through it well and is on the mend. Apparently he's sitting up today, this is Saturday, walked 60 feet and... His mind is as sharp as a tact. We hope to have him home in Lexington House by Wednesday. So fingers crossed everything's going all right as well for Gene Wolf. Bloody hell, four coronary bypasses there. That's no small feat. I Me mean, actually, ma'am used to work in the kind of... She actually used to work in Freeman Hospital on the intensive care unit when it first came, when they first started doing heart transplants in the northeast of England. Actually, I think it was probably the first in the UK. And... Do you know what I mean? Nowadays, it's a totally different way. But it's still, do you know what I mean? Big, big operation. So, fingers crossed, get well soon, Gene. I know Starship's over. Everyone listeners there is wishing you well. So, I think we'll kick off then. We'll jump in with JJ Campanella and his science news. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this April 2010 installment of Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening, Jim Campanella. I have lots of stuff to tell you, so let's eschew the preliminaries and get on with it. The first story of the night has to do with kids and television. As a parent, I worry continually about my preschoolers. Do they watch too much TV? Are they watching the wrong things? Are they learning the wrong things from what they watch? Are they learning anything at all? My wife and I have pretty much agreed that the kids will watch no commercial television for as long as it is humanly possible. And so far, they seem to be doing just fine on a limited menu of Sesame Street, Dinosaur Train, Word Girl, etc. But the specter of scientific studies keeps popping up. They tell us that kids do not learn from television, even educational television or Baby Einstein videos. Psychologists call this video deficit. The company that now owns Baby Einstein, Disney, even got so upset that their valuable franchise might lose some of its value that they actually brought legal action against those scientists who performed the original studies. So what is a parent to do? Just throw up their hands and pull the plug on the TV and give up? If a youngster can't learn from even an educational video, why not just throw in the towel? Well, Some new data presented at the International Conference on Infant Studies suggests that there may be a way around the problem of children not learning from TV shows. The work was presented by psychologist Dr. Sarah Roseberry of Temple University. According to Roseberry, quote, Under normal circumstances, television and videos may be so captivatingly interesting to young children that they have difficulty learning from those media, unquote. In other words, the images and sounds are so cool to the kids that they get very little academic edification from them. Sort of like adults watching the movie Avatar. It's just so damn cool to look at that you miss entirely. The plot is a major retread of a dozen other movies, most of them with much better written dialogue. Back to the point. In Roseberry's experiment, she overcame that obstacle by trying to get children to believe that the researchers could turn stuffed animals into real animals by putting toys inside a magic sesame machine. Roseberry said she and her colleagues devised a colorful contraption made from decorations, tubing, 
and a television screen that played videos of Sesame Street characters teaching children the meanings of real and nonsense words. In the control group, 20 toddlers ages 30 to 35 months and 20 kids ages 36 to 42 months watched 10-minute videos in which Sesame Street characters taught them about two novel verbs, one real and the other one made up. Only the older group demonstrated substantial word learning afterwards. In one example, a large majority of older but not younger kids learned the word bouncing from a video. When later shown a video of a woman holding a child in her lap, older kids correctly looked at the woman when asked to find bouncing, an expectation of seeing her bounce the child. Younger kids often looked elsewhere in the picture. In the second experiment, 20 children ages 24 to 29 months, and then another 20 kids, ages 30 to 35 months, watched videos on the magic sesame machine. Beforehand, children watched a researcher place a stuffed animal inside a yellow tube on one side of the machine, as if putting it inside the television console. A video showing the stuffed animal then began to play, and the researcher explained the machine's magical properties. Once the video concluded, the researcher removed a real version of the stuffed animal from a tube on the other side of the console. Wow, talk about messing up a kid's head. Those kids are going to need therapy. So what was the result? After watching the same educational videos in the magic machine, younger but not older toddlers showed evidence of having learned most words from the program. That reflects the fact that younger children told their parents that they believed in the magic machine whereas older children usually weren't tricked. The video deficit for word learning seems to be substantially counteracted by exposing the toddlers to recorded social interactions rather than mere demonstrations. Rosebury says, quote, That's a surprising finding, and it underscores how important social engagement is for early language learning, unquote. What can I conclude for my own kids? Well... I guess the experiment suggests that they will learn best from me and my wife and not from Elmo, which is not quite what I was hoping for, but well, as usual, that seems to be the way of the world. Speaking of television, some interesting research was reported recently in the MIT Technology Review on 3D images in television and movies. Dr. Michael Rosenberg of Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine says that until recently, 3D movies were not popular enough to be a problem. With the advent of, once again, Avatar, the eye strain issue has, quote, come up over and over again with many people reporting having symptoms of headaches, unquote. Now, I'm a big fan of the English movie reviewer Dr. Mark Kermode, whose weekly podcast I never miss. And Kermode has decried 3D in movies for the last year or two as a pointless fad that adds absolutely nothing to the movie itself. I have heard him go apoplectic innumerable times on the point. I find it fascinating that there may actually be a physical reason why 3D is such a bad thing for you, having nothing to do with artistry or movie making itself. 3D technology tricks the brain by showing the left eye one image and the right eye another, the brain layers those images together to produce a 3D image. For the latest 3D movies, polarizing glasses filter different images for each eye. In 3D TV sets, battery-powered active shutter glasses open and shut many times a second in sync with the TV image to show each eye a different picture. Rosenberg says that to look at a three-dimensional object in real life, eyes must do two things. First, they have to, quote, verge, 
which is rotate slightly inward or outward so that the projection of an image is always in the center of both retinas. And secondly, eyes must accommodate, which is change the shape of each lens to focus the image on the retina. Quote, without appropriate virgins, you would see double, and without appropriate accommodation, you'd see blurry. Unquote. We now know the reason why many people get headaches when they watch 3D movies. The researchers have found that artificial 3D causes, quote, virgins accommodation conflict, unquote, because viewers must focus at one distance where light is emitting from the screen, but then verge in another distance, that is wherever the 3D object happens to appear in space. That difference in distance in 3D viewing may be the source of headaches and other discomforts, says Rosenberg. In 3D, the natural linkage between virgins and accommodation is simply broken. The problem is that there is an inherent mismatch between 3D cues. Your eyes have to remain focused on the display, but at the same time have to converge at the depth either in front or behind the display, where the image from each eye overlaps correctly. I suspect that Mark Kermode, who has made clear his dislike of TV, would be thrilled to hear that a 3D television would only make your headache even worse. The article reports that the virgin's accommodation conflict will only get worse on a small screen. Quote, as you get closer to the screen, the consequences of the conflict are going to be worsened according to the research. And low-quality 3D video that is likely to be generated for TV will likely only make a bad situation worse. And what can we conclude? Well, if you get headaches at the cinema, you sure as heck do not want to buy a 3D television yet because it's likely that you'll be wasting lots of your money on aspirin until some better technology comes along. Here's a story that came out of left field. In this month's American Journal of Epidemiology, there's an article from the lab of Dr. Tina Cold Jensen at the University of Copenhagen. Her group reports that men who drink a liter or more of cola daily adversely affect their fertility and decrease their sperm count by almost 30%. Now, a liter is not that much. I think it's only like three or four cans. However, remember that men who drink that much cola a day are probably not going to be exactly Olympic athletes anyway. Jensen puts it a little better by saying, it's important to note that the men who drank a lot of cola were also different in many other ways. She goes on to say that the effect is unlikely due to caffeine, as coffee did not have the same effect on sperm count and fertility, even though its caffeine content is much higher. The data suggests instead that other ingredients in the beverage or an unhealthy lifestyle could be behind the results. The Danish team studied more than 2,500 young men. They found that those men who did not drink cola had better sperm quality, averaging about 50 million sperm per mil of semen, and tended to have a healthier lifestyle in general. Healthier lifestyle meaning they were not drinking a couple of hundred grams of sugar a day. This was in contrast to the 93 men out of the 2,500 who drank more than one liter of cola a day, they had only about 35 million sperm per mil on average. They also ate more fast foods and less fruit and vegetables and did not exercise as much. Wow, big surprise there. Personally, I'm not thrilled with their statistical analysis. Uh, 93 men out of 2,500 is a nice random population, but not that many, really, at least for a study like this. Dr. Jensen, I'd like to say if you're going to do this study again, do it right. Bias it entirely. 
Go to Comic-Con in San Diego. Do your tests there. You will not only have a lot more men there for your study, probably tenfold more, but there will also be lots of men who drink way more than four cans of Coke a day. It's just a thought. So when looking at caffeine from other sources, such as tea and coffee, the decrease in sperm quality was much less pronounced. It's still not clear if it's the cola or the unhealthy lifestyle, or both to be blamed. While the sperm counts found by Jensen and the cola drinking group would be considered normal by the World Health Organization, men with fewer sperm generally do have a higher risk of being infertile. And it's certainly statistically significant. By the way, note that the study does not bias itself with a particular cola, Coke, Pepsi, or Nozzle cola for that matter. Apparently, they all have the same effect. If you thought that all my ant stories had dried up, you were wrong. I have a new one for you. That may or may not make you happy, but on with the ant story. Dr. Gregoritz Bukowski of Purdue University has been studying the movement of ants from rural to suburban and city environments. He reports a new study this month in the Journal of Biological Invasions. Now, how is that for a scary name of a journal? Bukowski has performed the first systematic lifestyle survey of the odorous house ants in Indiana. He has found that the modest country-dwelling ant can change habits when it moves to the big city. In the forests of Indiana, the researchers found that the odorous house ants lived in colonies with just one queen each. With no more than 100 ants, each colony could actually live inside a single acorn. Ants from city parks and other semi-natural areas formed somewhat bigger colonies, he says. But in West Lafayette and other urban area zones nearby, Bukowski found that nests of odorous house ants connect via bustling ant trails to form what he calls super colonies. Each of the 15 colonies that he sampled typically had some 58,000 ants and 238 queens. One supercolony across the street from his office covered more than a city block and held six million workers and thousands of queens. Bukowski says, quote, In the forest, these odorous house ants have a pretty tough life. Plenty of other species compete for food and shelter, and ants living in unheated acorns go dormant during the winter. But in urban colonies, they stay active all year by retreating to warm refuges. Even when it's snowing outside, they can be happy inside reproducing, unquote. The ant's name comes from the odor they release when vexed. Bukowski describes this as somewhat like a pina colada, which actually doesn't sound particularly odorous to me, but whatever. The ant does not sting, does not bite, does not chew up houses. Yet Bukowski says that uh, pest control workers tell him that they're getting increasing numbers of calls from human city dwellers dismayed by the heavy ant traffic in their houses. Although the species is harmless, it does bring to bear an important worry. We need to be on watch for more dangerous species leaving their normal habitats and changing their habitats. Humans have gotten all too good at disrupting the natural environment around them, and if we're not careful, some small critter out there may be displaced and decide to bite us on the behind in retribution. The last story of the night is from this month's Journal of Experimental Biology and concerns a mystery about sea turtles, specifically loggerhead turtles. Dr. Sandra Hochscheid of the Stazione Zoologica Anton Dorn in Italy is fascinated by loggerhead turtles. Quote, I was always interested in what they did under the surface, unquote, she says. But 
When she began hearing reports the turtles had been spotted on the surface on calm days, she was intrigued. Having spent most of the last decade tracking the loggerhead turtles' diving behavior with satellite technology, she had never noticed that the turtles took extended breaks at the surface. They only need a few minutes to recharge their oxygen supply, so why were the reptiles taking such long surface breaks? Curious to find out whether the anecdotes were true, and if so, why, Hawkshide and her colleagues Flegra Bentevegna, Abdullah Hamza, and Graham Hayes from Swansea University all decided to track the loggerhead's diving behavior to see if they could find any evidence of the surfacing behavior. Over a period of more than a year, they used sophisticated satellite tracking, which calculated the turtle's location on the surface and then transmitted how deep and long they had dived, the temperature of the water surrounding them, and the length of time that they actually spent at the surface. And as she was analyzing the data, she realized that the antidotes were true. The turtles did occasionally spend extended periods at the surface, ranging from tens of minutes up to marathon sessions of 17 hours on one occasion, with more than 80% of the visits occurring during daylight. Looking closer to see if the behavior was related to the turtles' diving activity, Hawkshide noticed that the majority of the stays at the surface occurred around noon and midday, when the sun was at its highest, and that some of the turtles were diving much deeper than had been expected. A few of the larger turtles were diving off the continental shelf and were going into very deep water, and they were even experiencing 10-degree temperature differences between the surface and the depths. Now, Hawkshide suspected that the animals remained at the surface to warm up after their cold, deep dives and to top off their vitamin D levels. The thing she couldn't explain was the long periods of time during the night when they surfaced. Scrutinizing the duration of the dives that preceded the long nocturnal surface breaks, Hawkshide realized that some of the turtles were remaining submerged well after their oxygen stores have run out. Knowing that the turtles can extend the length of a dive by switching to anaerobic metabolism after exhausting their oxygen supply, she suspected that the turtles may be clearing lactic acid. Now, anaerobic metabolism occurs when you have no oxygen. This happens to humans as well. If you're a marathon runner, for example, and you run uh, 20 miles or 10 miles for that matter, at some point you begin to use up your stores of oxygen sort of stored in the muscles. And if you're not taking in enough oxygen through your breathing, if you're not that good of a runner, for example, you will start to go through anaerobic metabolism, which, which essentially means that your muscles will be making uh, or trying to make energy when there's no oxygen available, which is absolutely essential. If that happens, you begin to accumulate lactic acid. And lactic acid is one of the reasons why your muscles ache like all blazes after a long run or after a long workout when you are not breathing correctly. This is why it's so important to breathe, breathe, breathe during long exercise. So Hawkshide suspected that the turtles may be clearing that lactic acid, which accumulated during anaerobic metabolism during those long dives, and that they may be trying to get rid of it from their muscles during those long stopovers. So loggerhead turtles seem to extend surface breaks for at least two reasons, to soak up the sun and get warm by day, and to recover from anaerobic exercise at night. So at least there, part of the mystery is solved. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care, avoid drinking cola while watching 3D movies, and I hope I've inspired some of you.
Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, Auto Legacy, always a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Next up is The Main Fiction, and it's by James Allen Gardner. I'll give you a little heads up, James Allen Gardner. He is Canadian science fiction author, born in 1955. He earned a bachelor's and master's degrees in applied mathematics from the University of Waterloo. I'm laughing there because that's just like way beyond my... <laughs> understanding. Gardner has published science fiction short stories in a range of periodicals, including the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and Amazing Stories. In 1989, his short story Children of the Crash was awarded the grand prize in Writers of the Future Contest. Actually got a story coming up from the Writers of the Future Contest as well. Two years later, his story Muffin Explains Teleology to the World at Large won the Awara Award. Another short story, Three Hearings on the Existence of Snakes in the Human Bloodstream, won an award award and was nominated for both Nebula and Hugo Awards. This story, The Ray Gun, a love story, was nominated for Best Novelette in 2009, Hugo Awards. Actually, it lost out to Shoggoths in Bloom by Elizabeth Bear, which we actually have played as well. This story is narrated by the fantastic Ray Sizemore. No one else could have done this story as good as Ray. It is an amazing narration. Ray, you're a star. Thank you so much. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Raygun, a love story by James Allen Gardner. This is a story about a ray gun. The ray gun will not be explained except to say it shoots rays. They are dangerous rays. If they hit you in the arm, it withers. If they hit you in the face, you go blind. If they hit you in the heart, you die. These things must be true, or else it would not be a ray gun. But it is. Ray guns come from space. This one came from the captain of an alien starship passing through our solar system. The ship stopped to scoop up hydrogen from the atmosphere of Jupiter. During this refueling process, the crew mutinied for reasons we cannot comprehend. We will never comprehend aliens. If someone spent a month explaining alien thoughts to us, we'd think we understood, but we wouldn't. Our brains only know how to be human. Although alien thoughts are beyond us, alien actions may be easy to grasp. We can understand the what, if not the why. If we saw what happened inside the alien vessel, we would recognize that the crew tried to take the captain's ray gun and kill him. There was a fight. The ray gun went off many times. The starship exploded. All this happened many centuries ago, before telescopes. The people of Earth still wore animal skins. They only knew Jupiter as a dot in the sky. When the starship exploded, the dot got a tiny bit brighter, then returned to normal. No one on Earth noticed. Not even the shamans who thought dots in the sky were important. The ray gun survived the explosion. A ray gun must be resilient, or else it is not a ray gun. The explosion hurled the ray gun away from Jupiter and out into open space. After thousands of years, the ray gun reached Earth. It fell from the sky like a meteor. It grew hot enough to glow, but it didn't burn up. The ray gun fell at night during a blizzard. Traveling thousands of miles an hour, the ray gun plunged deep into snow-covered woods. The snow melted so quickly that it burst into steam. The blizzard continued, unaffected. Some things can't be harmed, even by ray guns. Unthinking snowflakes drifted down. If they touched the ray gun's surface, they vaporized, stealing heat from the weapon. 
Heat also radiated outward, melting snow nearby on the ground. Meltwater flowed into the shallow crater made by the ray gun's impact. Water and snow cooled the weapon until all excess temperature had dissipated. A million more snowflakes heaped over the crater, hiding the ray gun till spring. In March, the gun was found by a boy named Jack. He was fourteen years old and walking through the woods after school. He walked slowly, brooding about his lack of popularity. Jack despised popular students and had no interest in anything they did. Even so, he envied them. They didn't appear to be lonely. Jack wished he had a girlfriend. He wished he were important. He wished he knew what to do with his life. Instead, he walked alone in the woods on the edge of town. The woods were not wild or isolated. They were crisscrossed with trails made by children playing hide-and-seek. But in spring, the trails were muddy. Most people stayed away. Jack soon worried more about how to avoid shoe-sucking mud than about the unfairness of the world. He took wide detours around mucky patches, thrashing through brush that was crisp from winter. Stalks broke as he passed. Burrs stuck to his jacket. He got farther and farther from the usual paths, hoping he'd find a way out by blundering forward rather than swallowing his pride and retreating. In this way, Jack reached the spot where the ray gun had landed. He saw the crater it had made. He found the ray gun itself. The gun seized Jack's attention, but he didn't know what it was. Its design was too alien to be recognized as a weapon. Its metal was blackened, but not black, as if it had once been another color, but had finished that phase of its existence. Its pistol butt was bulbous, the size of a tennis ball. Its barrel, as long as Jack's hand, was straight, but its surface had dozens of nubs like a briarwood cane. The gun's trigger was a protruding blister you squeezed till it popped. A hard metal cap could slide over the blister to prevent the gun from firing accidentally, but the safety was off. It had been off for centuries, ever since the fight on the starship. The alien captain who once owned the weapon might have considered it beautiful, but to human eyes, the gun resembled a dirty wet stick with a lump on one end. Jack might have walked by without giving it a second look if it hadn't been lying in a scorched crater. But it was. The crater was two paces across and barren of plant life. The vegetation had burned in the heat of the ray gun's fall. Soon enough, new spring growth would sprout, making the crater less obvious. At present, though, the ray gun stood out on the charred earth like a snake in an empty birdbath. Jack picked up the gun. Though it looked like briarwood, it was cold like metal. It felt solid, not heavy, but substantial. It had the heft of a well-made object. Jack turned the gun in his hands, examining it from every angle. When he looked down the muzzle, he saw a crystal lens cut into hundreds of facets. Jack poked it with his baby finger, thinking the lens was a piece of glass that someone had jammed inside. He had the idea this might be a toy, perhaps a squirt gun dropped by a careless child. If so, it had to be the most expensive toy Jack had ever seen. The gun's barrel and its lens were so perfectly machined that no one could mistake the craftsmanship. Jack continued to poke at the weapon until the inevitable happened. He pressed the trigger blister. The ray gun went off. It might have been fatal, but by chance Jack was holding the gun aimed away from himself. A ray shot out of the gun's muzzle and blasted through a maple tree ten paces away. The ray made no sound, and although Jack had seen it clearly, he couldn't say what the ray's color had been. It had no color. It was simply a presence, like wind chill or gravity. 
Yet Jack was sure he'd seen a force emanate from the muzzle and strike the tree. Though the ray can't be described, its effect was plain. A circular hole appeared in the maple tree's trunk, where bark and wood disintegrated into sizzling plasma. The plasma expanded at high speed and pressure, blowing apart what remained of the surrounding trunk. The ray made no sound, but the explosion did. Shocked chunks of wood and boiling maple sap flew outward, obliterating a cross-section of the tree. The lower part of the trunk and the roots were still there, so were the upper part and branches. In between was a gap filled with hot escaping gases. The unsupported part of the maple fell. It toppled ponderously backwards. The maple crashed onto the trees behind, its winter bare branches snagging theirs. To Jack, it seemed that the forest had stopped the maple's fall, like soldiers catching an injured companion before he hit the ground. Jack still held the gun. He gazed at it in wonder. His mind couldn't grasp what had happened. He didn't drop the gun in fear. He didn't try to fire it again. He simply stared. It was a ray gun. It would never be anything else. Jack wondered where the weapon had come from. Had aliens visited these woods? Or was the gun created by a secret government project? Did the gun's owner want it back? Was he, she, or it searching the woods right now? Jack was tempted to put the gun back into the crater, then run before the owner showed up. But was there really an owner nearby? The crater suggested that the gun had fallen from space. Jack had seen photos of meteor impact craters. This wasn't exactly the same, but it had a similar look. Jack turned his eyes upward. He saw a mundane after-school sky. It had no UFOs. Jack felt embarrassed for even looking. He examined the crater again. If Jack left the gun here, and the owner never retrieved it, sooner or later the weapon would be found by someone else, probably by children playing in the woods. They might shoot each other by accident. If this were an ordinary gun, Jack would never leave it lying in a place like this. He'd take the gun home, tell his parents, and they'd turn it over to the police. Should he do the same for this gun? No, he didn't want to. But he didn't know what he wanted to do instead. Questions buzzed through his mind, starting with, What should I do? Then moving on to, Am I in danger? And, Do aliens really exist? After a while, he found himself wondering, Exactly how much can the gun blow up? That question made him smile. Jack decided he wouldn't tell anyone about the gun. Not now, and maybe not ever. He would take it home and hide it where it wouldn't be found, but where it would be available if trouble came. What kind of trouble? Aliens? Spies? Supervillains? Who knew? If ray guns were real, was anything impossible? On the walk home, Jack was so distracted by what-ifs that he nearly got hit by a car. He had reached the road that separated the woods from neighboring houses. Like most roads in that part of Jack's small town, it didn't get much traffic. Jack stepped out from the trees, and suddenly a sports car whizzed past him only two steps away. Jack staggered back. The driver leaned on the horn. Jack hit his shoulder on an oak tree. Then the incident was over, except for belated adrenaline. For a full minute afterward, Jack leaned against the oak and felt his heart pound. As close calls go, this one wasn't too bad. Jack hadn't really been near enough to the road to get hit. Still, Jack needed quite a while to calm down. 
How stupid would it be to die in an accident on the day he'd found something miraculous? Jack ought to have been watching for trouble. What if the threat had been a bug-eyed monster instead of a car? Jack should have been alert and prepared. In his mind's eye, he imagined the incident again, only this time he casually somersaulted to safety rather than stumbling into a tree. That's how you're supposed to cheat death if you're carrying a ray gun, with cool, heroic flair. But Jack couldn't do somersaults. He said to himself, I'm Peter Parker, not Spider-Man. On the other hand, Jack had just acquired great power. And great responsibility. Like Peter Parker, Jack had to keep his power secret, for fear of tragic consequences. In Jack's case, maybe aliens would come for him. Maybe spies or government agents would kidnap him and his family. No matter how far-fetched those things seemed, the existence of a ray gun proved the world wasn't tame. That night, Jack debated what to do with the gun. He pictured himself shooting terrorists and gang lords. If he rid the world of scum, pretty girls might admire him. But as soon as Jack imagined himself storming into a terrorist stronghold, he realized he'd get killed almost immediately. The ray gun provided awesome firepower, but no defense at all. Besides, if Jack had found an ordinary gun in the forest, he never would have dreamed of running around murdering bad guys. Why should a ray gun be different? But it was different. Jack couldn't put the difference into words, but it was as real as the weapon's solid weight in his hands. The ray gun changed everything. A world that contained a ray gun might also contain flying saucers, beautiful secret agents, and heroes. Heroes who could somersault away from oncoming sports cars. Heroes who would cope with any danger. Heroes who deserved to have a ray gun. When he was young... Jack had taken for granted he'd become a hero, brave, skilled, and important. Somehow he'd lost that belief. He'd let himself settle for being ordinary. But now he wasn't ordinary. He had a ray gun. He had to live up to it. Jack had to be ready for bug-eyed monsters and giant robots. These were no longer childish daydreams. They were real possibilities in a world where ray guns existed. Jack could picture himself running through town, blasting aliens and saving the planet. Such thoughts made sense when Jack held the ray gun in his hands, as if the gun planted fantasies in his mind. The feel of the gun filled Jack with ambition. All weapons have a sense of purpose. Jack practiced with the gun as often as he could. To avoid being seen, he rode his bike to a tract of land in the country, twenty acres owned by Jack's great-uncle Ron. No one went there but Jack. Uncle Ron had once intended to build a house on the property, but that had never happened. Now Ron was in a nursing home. Jack's family intended to sell the land once the old man died, but Ron was healthy for someone in his nineties. Until Uncle Ron's health ran out, Jack had the place to himself. The tract was undeveloped, raw forest, not a woods where children played. In the middle lay a pond, completely hidden by trees. Jack would float sticks in the pond and shoot them with the gun. If he missed, the water boiled. If he didn't, the sticks were destroyed. Sometimes they erupted in fire. Sometimes they burst with a bang but no flame. Sometimes they simply vanished. Jack couldn't tell if he was doing something subtly different to get each effect, or if the ray gun changed modes on its own. Perhaps it had a computer which analyzed the target and chose the most lethal attack. Perhaps the attacks were always the same, but differences in the sticks made for different results. Jack didn't know. 
But as spring led to summer, he became a better shot. By autumn, he'd begun throwing sticks into the air and trying to vaporize them before they reached the ground. During this time, Jack grew stronger. Long bike rides to the pond helped his legs and his stamina. In addition, he exercised with fitness equipment his parents had bought but never used. If monsters ever came, Jack couldn't afford to be weak. Heroes had to climb fences and break down doors. They had to balance on rooftops and hang by their fingers from cliffs. They had to run fast enough to save the girl. Jack pumped iron and ran every day. As he did so, he imagined dodging bullets and tentacles. When he felt like giving up, he cradled the ray gun in his hands. It gave him the strength to persevere. Before the ray gun, Jack had seen himself as just another teenager. His life didn't make sense. But the gun made Jack a hero who might be needed to save the Earth. It clarified everything. Sore muscles didn't matter. Watching TV was a waste. If you let down your guard, that's when the monsters came. When he wasn't exercising, Jack studied science. That was another part of being a hero. He sometimes dreamed he'd analyze the ray gun, discovering how it worked and giving humans amazing new technology. At other times, he didn't want to understand the gun at all. He liked its mystery. Besides, there was no guarantee Jack would ever understand how the gun worked. Perhaps human science wouldn't progress far enough in Jack's lifetime. Perhaps Jack himself wouldn't have the brains to figure it out. But he had enough brains for high school. He did well. He was motivated. He had to hold back to avoid attracting attention. When his gym teacher told him he should go out for track, Jack ran slower and pretended to get out of breath. Spider-Man had to do the same. A year later, in geography class, a girl named Kirsten gave Jack a daisy. She said the daisy was good luck, and he should make a wish. Even a fifteen-year-old boy couldn't misconstrue such a hint. Despite awkwardness and foot-dragging, Jack soon had a girlfriend. Kirsten was quiet but pretty. She played guitar. She wrote poems. She'd never had a boyfriend, but she knew how to kiss. These were all good things. Jack wondered if he should tell her about the ray gun. Until Kirsten, Jack's only knowledge of girls came from his big sister, Rachel. Rachel was seventeen and incapable of keeping a secret. She talked with her friends about everything and was too slapdash to hide private things well. Jack didn't snoop through his sister's possessions, but when Rachel left her bedroom door ajar with empty cigarette packs tumbling out of the garbage can, who wouldn't notice? When she gossiped on the phone about sex with her boyfriend, who couldn't overhear? Jack didn't want to listen, but Rachel never lowered her voice. The things Jack heard made him queasy, about his sister and girls in general. If he showed Kirsten the ray gun, would she tell her friends? Jack wanted to believe she wasn't that kind of girl, but he didn't know how many kinds of girl there were. He just knew that the ray gun was too important for him to take chances. Changing the status quo wasn't worth the risk. Yet the status quo changed anyway. The more time Jack spent with Kirsten, the less he had for shooting practice and other aspects of herodom. He felt guilty for skimping on crisis preparation, but when he went to the pond or spent a night reading science, he felt guilty for skimping on Kirsten. Jack would tell her he couldn't come over to do homework, and when she asked why, he'd have to make up excuses. He felt he was treating her like an enemy spy, holding her at arm's length, as if she were some femme fatale who was tempting him to betray state secrets. He hated not trusting her. Despite this wall between them, Kirsten became Jack's lens on the world. 
If anything interesting happened, Jack didn't experience it directly. Some portion of his mind stood back, enjoying the anticipation of having something to tell Kirsten about the next time they met. Whatever he saw, he wanted her to see it too. Whenever Jack heard a joke, even before he started laughing, he pictured himself repeating it to Kirsten. Inevitably, Jack asked himself what she'd think of his herodom. Would she be impressed? Would she throw her arms around him and say he was even more wonderful than she'd thought? Or would she get that look on her face, the one when she heard bad poetry? Would she think he was an immature geek who'd read too many comic books and was pursuing some juvenile fantasy? How could anyone believe hostile aliens might appear in the sky? And if aliens did show up, how delusional was it that a teenage boy might make a difference, even if he owned a ray gun and could do a hundred push-ups without stopping? For weeks, Jack agonized. To tell or not to tell? Was Kirsten worthy or just a copy of Jack's sister? Was Jack himself worthy or just a foolish boy? One Saturday in May, Jack and Kirsten went biking. Jack led her to the pond where he practiced with the gun. He hadn't yet decided what he'd do when they got there, but Jack couldn't just tell Kirsten about the ray gun. She'd never believe it was real unless she saw the rays in action. But so much could go wrong. Jack was terrified of giving away his deepest secret. He was afraid that when he saw Herodom through Kirsten's eyes, he'd realize it was silly. At the pond, Jack felt so nervous he could hardly speak. He babbled about the warm weather, a patch of mushrooms, a crow cawing in a tree. He talked about everything except what was on his mind. Kirsten misinterpreted his anxiety. She thought she knew why Jack had brought her to this secluded spot. After a while, she decided he needed encouragement, so she took off her shirt and her bra. It was the wrong thing to do. Jack hadn't meant this outing to be a test. But it was, and Kirsten had failed. Jack took off his own shirt and wrapped his arms around her, chest touching breasts for the first time. He discovered it was possible to be excited and disappointed at the same time. Jack and Kirsten made out on a patch of hard dirt. It was the first time they'd been alone with no risk of interruption. They kept their pants on, but they knew they could go farther, as far as there was. No one in the world would stop them from whatever they chose to do. Jack and Kirsten felt light in their skins, open and dizzy with possibilities. Yet, for Jack, it was all a mistake, one that couldn't be reversed. Now he'd never tell Kirsten about the ray gun. He'd missed his chance because she'd acted the way Jack's sister would have acted. Kirsten had been thinking like a girl, and she'd ruined things forever. Jack hated the way he felt, all angry and resentful. He really liked Kirsten. He liked making out and couldn't wait till the next time. He refused to be a guy who dumped a girl as soon as she let him touch her breasts. But he was now shut off from her, and he had no idea how to get over that. In the following months, Jack grew guiltier. He was treating Kirsten as if she were good enough for sex, but not good enough to be told about the most important thing in his life. As for Kirsten, every day made her more unhappy. She felt Jack blaming her for something, but she didn't know what she'd done. When they got together, they went straight to fondling and more as soon as possible. If they tried to talk, they didn't know what to say. In August, Kirsten left to spend three weeks with her grandparents on Vancouver Island. Neither she nor Jack missed each other. They didn't even miss the sex. It was a relief to be apart.
When Kirsten got back, they went for a walk and a confused conversation. Both produced excuses for why they couldn't stay together. The excuses didn't make sense, but neither Jack nor Kirsten noticed. They were too ashamed to pay attention to what they were saying. They both felt like failures. They thought their love would last forever. And now it was ending sordidly. When the lying was over, Jack went for a run. He ran in a mental blur. His mind didn't clear until he found himself at the pond. Night was drawing in. He thought of all the things he'd done with Kirsten, on the shore and in the water. After that first time, they'd come here a lot. It was private. Because of Kirsten, this wasn't the same pond as when Jack had first begun to practice with the ray gun. Jack wasn't the same boy. He and the pond now carried histories. Jack could feel himself balanced on the edge of quitting. He turned sixteen. One more year of high school, then he'd go away to university. He realized he no longer believed in the imminent arrival of aliens, nor could he see himself as some great hero saving the world. Jack knew he wasn't a hero. He'd used a nice girl for sex, then lied to get rid of her. He felt like crap. But blasting the shit out of sticks made him feel a little better. The ray gun still had its uses, even if shooting aliens wasn't one of them. The next day, Jack did more blasting. He pumped iron. He got science books out of the library. Without Kirsten at his side several hours a day, he had time to fill and emptiness. By the first day of the new school year, Jack was back to his full herodom program. He no longer deceived himself that he was preparing for battle, but the program gave him something to do. A purpose, a release, and a penance. So, that was Jack's passage into manhood. He was dishonest with the girl he loved. Manhood means learning who you are. In his last year of high school, Jack went out with other girls, but he was past the all-or-nothingness of first love. He could have casual fun. He could approach sex with perspective. Monumental and life-changing had been tempered to pleasant and exciting. Jack didn't take his girlfriends for granted, but they were people, not objects of worship. He was never tempted to tell any of them about the gun. When he left town for university, Jack majored in engineering physics. He hadn't decided whether he'd ever analyze the ray gun's inner workings, but he couldn't imagine taking courses that were irrelevant to the weapon. The ray gun was the central fact of Jack's life. Even if he wasn't a hero, he was set apart from other people by this evidence that aliens existed. During freshman year, Jack lived in an on-campus dormitory. Hiding the ray gun from his roommate would have been impossible. Jack left the weapon at home, hidden near the pond. In sophomore year, Jack rented an apartment off campus. Now he could keep the ray gun with him. He didn't like leaving it untended. Jack persuaded a lab assistant to let him borrow a Geiger counter. The ray gun emitted no radioactivity at all. Objects blasted by the gun showed no significant radioactivity either. Over time, Jack borrowed other equipment, or took blast debris to the lab so he could conduct tests when no one was around. He found nothing that explained how the ray gun worked. The winter before Jack graduated, Great Uncle Ron finally died. In his will, the old man left his twenty acres of forest to Jack. Uncle Ron had found out that Jack liked to visit the pond. I told him, said Big Sister Rachel. Do you think I didn't know where you and Kirsten went? Jack had to laugh. Uncomfortably. He was embarrassed to discover he couldn't keep secrets any better than his sister. Jack's father offered to help him sell the land to pay for his education. The offer was polite, not pressing. 
Uncle Ron had doled out so much cash in his will that Jack's family was now well off. When Jack said he'd rather hold on to the property until the market improves, no one objected. After getting his bachelor's degree, Jack continued on to grad school, first his master's, then his Ph.D. In one of his courses, he met Deanna, working toward her own doctorate in electrical engineering rather than engineering physics. The two programs shared several seminars, but considered themselves rivals. Engineering physics students pretended that electrical engineers weren't smart enough to understand abstract principles. Electrical engineers pretended that engineering physics students were pie-in-the-sky dreamers, whose theories were always wrong until real engineers fixed them. Choosing to sit side by side, Jack and Deanna teased each other every class. Within months, Deanna moved into Jack's apartment. Deanna was small but physical. She told Jack she'd been drawn to him because he was the only man in their class who lifted weights. When Deanna was young, she'd been a competitive swimmer. Very competitive, she said. But her adolescent growth spurt had never arrived, and she was eventually outmatched by girls with longer limbs. Deanna had quit the competition circuit, but she hadn't quit swimming, nor had she lost the drive to be one up on those around her. She saw most things as contests, including her relationship with Jack. Deanna was not beyond cheating if it gave her an edge. In the apartment they now shared, Jack thought he'd hidden the ray gun so well that Deanna wouldn't find it. He didn't suspect that when he wasn't home, she went through his things. She couldn't stand the thought that Jack might have secrets from her. He returned one day to find the gun on the kitchen table. Deanna was poking at it. Jack wanted to yell, Leave it alone! But he was so choked with anger he couldn't speak. Deanna's hand was close to the trigger. The safety was off, and the muzzle pointed in Jack's direction. He threw himself to the floor. Nothing happened. Deanna was so surprised by Jack's sudden move that she jerked her hand away from the gun. What the hell are you doing? Jack got to his feet. I could ask you the same question. I found this. I wondered what it was. Jack knew she didn't find the gun. It had been buried under old notebooks inside a box at the back of a closet. Jack expected that Deanna would invent some excuse for why she'd been digging into Jack's private possessions, but the excuse wouldn't be worth believing. What infuriated Jack most was that he'd actually been thinking of showing Deanna the gun. She was a very, very good engineer. Jack had dreamed that together he and she might discover how the gun worked. Of all the women Jack had known, Deanna was the first he'd asked to move in with him. She was strong, and she was smart. She might understand the gun. The time had never been right to tell her the truth. Jack was still getting to know her, and he needed to be absolutely sure. But Jack had dreamed. And now, like Kirsten at the pond, Deanna had ruined everything. Jack felt so violated he could barely stand to look at the woman. He wanted to throw her out of the apartment, but that would draw too much attention to the gun. He couldn't let Deanna think the gun was important. She was still staring at him, waiting for an explanation. That's just something for my great-uncle Ron, Jack said. An African good luck charm, or Indonesian, I forget. Uncle Ron traveled a lot. Actually, Ron sold insurance and seldom left the town where he was born. Jack picked up the gun from the table, trying to do so calmly rather than protectively. I wish you hadn't touched this. It's old and fragile. It felt pretty solid to me. Solid, but still breakable. Why did you dive to the floor? Just silly superstition. It's bad luck to have this end point toward you. Jack gestured toward the muzzle. And it's good luck to be on this end. He gestured toward the butt, then tried to make a joke. 
Like there's a Maxwell demon in the middle, batting bad luck one way and good luck the other. You believe that crap? Deanna asked. She was an engineer. She went out of her way to disbelieve crap. Of course I don't believe it, Jack said. But why ask for trouble? He took the gun back to the closet. Deanna followed. As Jack returned the gun to its box, Deanna said she'd been going through Jack's notes in search of anything he had on partial differential equations. Jack nearly let her get away with the lie. He usually let the women in his life get away with almost anything. But he realized he didn't want Deanna in his life anymore. Whatever connection she and he had once felt, it was cut off the moment he saw her with the ray gun. Jack accused her of invading his privacy. Deanna said he was paranoid. The argument grew heated. Out of habit, Jack almost backed down several times, but he stopped himself. He didn't want Deanna under the same roof as the ray gun. His feelings were partly irrational possessiveness, but also justifiable caution. If Deanna got the gun and accidentally fired it, the results might be disastrous. Jack and Deanna continued to argue, right there in the closet within inches of the ray gun. The gun lay in its box, like a child at the feet of parents fighting over custody. The ray gun did nothing, as if it didn't care who won. Eventually, unforgivable words were spoken. Deanna said she'd move out as soon as possible. She left to stay the night with a friend. The moment she was gone, Jack moved the gun. Deanna still had a key to the apartment. She needed it until she could pack her things, and Jack was certain she'd try to grab the weapon as soon as he was busy elsewhere. The ray gun was now a prize in a contest, and Deanna never backed down. Jack took the weapon to the university. He worked as an assistant for his Ph.D. supervisor, and he'd been given a locker in the supervisor's lab. The locker wasn't Fort Knox, but leaving the gun there was better than leaving it in the apartment. The more Jack thought about Deanna, the more he saw her as prying and obsessive, grasping for dominance. He didn't know what he'd ever seen in her. The next morning, he wondered if he'd overreacted. Was he demonizing his ex like a sitcom cliché? If she was so egotistic, why hadn't he noticed before? Jack had no good answer. He decided he didn't need one. Unlike when he broke up with Kirsten, Jack felt no guilt this time. The sooner Deanna was gone, the happier he'd be. In a few days, Deanna called to say she'd found a new place to live. She and Jack arranged a time for her to pick up her belongings. Jack didn't want to be there while she moved out. He couldn't stand seeing her in the apartment again. Instead, Jack went back to his hometown for a long weekend with his family. It was lucky he did. Jack left Friday afternoon and didn't get back to the university until Monday night. The police were waiting for him. Deanna had disappeared late Saturday. She'd talked to friends on Saturday afternoon. She'd made arrangements for Sunday brunch but hadn't shown up. No one had seen her since. As the ex-boyfriend, Jack was a prime suspect. But his alibi was solid. His hometown was hundreds of miles from the university, and his family could testify he'd been there the whole time. Jack couldn't possibly have sneaked back to the university, made Deanna disappear, and raced back home. Grudgingly, the police let Jack off the hook. They decided Deanna must have been depressed by the breakup of the relationship. She might have run off so she wouldn't have to see Jack around the university. She might even have committed suicide. Jack suspected otherwise. As soon as the police let him go, he went to his supervisor's lab. His locker had been pried open. The ray gun lay on a nearby lab bench. Jack could easily envision what happened. 
While moving out her things, Deanna searched for the ray gun. She hadn't found it in the apartment. She knew Jack had a locker in the lab, and she'd guessed he'd stash the weapon there. She broke open the locker to get the gun. She'd examined it and perhaps tried to take it apart. The gun went off. Now Deanna was gone. Not even a smudge on the floor. The ray gun lay on the lab bench, as guiltless as a stone. Jack was the only one with a conscience. He suffered for weeks. Jack wondered how he could feel so bad about a woman who'd made him furious. But he knew the source of his guilt. While he and Deanna were arguing in the closet, Jack had imagined vaporizing her with the gun. He was far too decent to shoot her for real, but the thought had crossed his mind. If Deanna simply vanished, Jack wouldn't have to worry about what she might do. The ray gun had made that thought come true, as if it had read Jack's mind. Jack told himself the notion was ridiculous. The gun wasn't some genie who granted Jack's unspoken wishes. What happened to Deanna came purely from her own bad luck and inquisitiveness. Still, Jack felt like a murderer. After all this time, Jack realized the ray gun was too dangerous to keep. As long as Jack had it, he'd be forced to live alone, never marrying, never having children, never trusting the gun around other people. And even if Jack became a recluse, accidents could happen. Someone else might die. It would be Jack's fault. He wondered why he'd never thought this before. Jack suddenly saw himself as one of those people who owned a vicious attack dog. People like that always claimed they could keep the dog under control. How often did they end up on the evening news? How often did children get bitten, maimed, or killed? Some dogs are tragedies waiting to happen. The ray gun was, too. It would keep slipping off its leash until it was destroyed. Twelve years after finding the gun, Jack realized he finally had a heroic mission, to get rid of the weapon that made him a hero in the first place. I'm not Spider-Man, he thought. I'm Frodo. But how could Jack destroy something that had survived so much? The gun hadn't frozen in the cold of outer space, it hadn't burned up as it plunged through Earth's atmosphere, it hadn't broken when it hit the ground at terminal velocity. If the gun could endure such punishment, extreme measures would be needed to lay it to rest. Jack imagined putting the gun in a blast furnace. But what if the weapon went off? What if it shot out the side of the furnace? The furnace itself could explode. That would be a disaster. Other means of destruction had similar problems. Crushing the gun in a hydraulic press? What if the gun shot a hole in the press, sending pieces of equipment flying in all directions? Immersing the gun in acid? What if the gun went off and splashed acid over everything? Slicing into the gun with a laser? Jack didn't know what powered the gun, but obviously it contained vast energy. Destabilizing that energy might cause an explosion, a radiation leak, or even some greater catastrophe. Who knew what might happen if you tampered with alien technology? And what if the gun could protect itself? Over the years, Jack had read every ray gun story he could find. In some stories, such weapons had built-in computers. They had enough artificial intelligence to assess their situations. If they didn't like what was happening, they took action. What if Jack's gun was similar? What if attempts to destroy the weapon induced it to fight back? What if the ray gun got mad? Jack decided the only safe plan was to drop the gun into an ocean. The deeper, the better. Even then, Jack feared the gun would somehow make its way back to shore. He hoped that the weapon would take years or even centuries to return, by which time humanity might be scientifically equipped to deal with the ray gun's power. Jack's plan had one weakness. Both the university and Jack's hometown were far from the sea. 
Jack didn't know anyone with an ocean-going boat suitable for dumping objects into deep water. He'd just have to drive to the coast and see if he could rent something. But not until summer. Jack was in the final stages of his Ph.D. and didn't have time to leave the university for an extended trip. As a temporary measure, Jack moved the ray gun back to the pond. He buried the weapon several feet underground, hoping that would keep it safe from animals and anyone else who happened by. Jack imagined a new generation of lovesick teenagers discovering the pond. If that happened, he wanted them safe. Like a real hero, Jack cared about people he didn't know. Jack no longer practiced with the gun, but he maintained his physical regimen. He tried to exhaust himself so he wouldn't have the energy to brood. It didn't work. Lying sleepless in bed, he kept wondering what would have happened if he told Deanna the truth. She wouldn't have killed herself if she'd been warned to be cautious. But Jack had cared more about his precious secret than Deanna's life. In the dark, Jack muttered it was her own damn fault. His words were true, but not true enough. When Jack wasn't at the gym, he cloistered himself with schoolwork and research. His doctoral thesis was about common properties of different types of high-energy beams. Jack didn't socialize. He seldom phoned home. He took days to answer email messages from his sister. Even so, he told himself he was doing an excellent job of acting normal. Jack had underestimated his sister's perceptiveness. One weekend, Rachel showed up on his doorstep to see why he'd gone weird. She spent two days digging under his skin. By the end of the weekend, she could tell that Deanna's disappearance had disturbed Jack profoundly. Rachel couldn't guess the full truth, but as a big sister, she felt entitled to meddle in Jack's life. She resolved to snap her brother out of his low spirits. The next weekend, Rachel showed up on Jack's doorstep again. This time, she brought Kirsten. Nine years had passed since Kirsten and Jack had seen each other, the day they both graduated from high school. In the intervening time, when Jack had thought of Kirsten, he always pictured her as a high school girl. It was strange to see her as a woman. At 26, she was not greatly changed from 17, new glasses and a better haircut. But despite similarities to her teenage self, Kirsten wore her life differently. She'd grown up. So had Jack. Meeting Kirsten by surprise made Jack feel ambushed, but he soon got over it. Rachel helped by talking loud and fast through the initial awkwardness. She took Jack and Kirsten for coffee, and acted as MC as they got reacquainted. Kirsten had followed a path close to Jack's, university and graduate work. She told him, No one makes a living as a poet. Most of us find jobs as English professors, teaching poetry to others who won't make a living at it either. Kirsten had earned her doctorate a month earlier. Now she was living back home. She currently had no man in her life. Her last relationship had fizzled out months ago, and she decided to avoid new involvements until she knew where she would end up teaching. She'd sent her resume to English departments all over the continent, and was optimistic about her chances of success. To Jack's surprise, Kirsten had published dozens of poems in literary magazines. She'd even sold two to The New Yorker. Her publishing record would be enough to interest many English departments. After coffee, Rachel dragged Jack to a mall where she and Kirsten made him buy new clothes. Rachel bullied Jack, while Kirsten made apologetic suggestions. Jack did his best to be a good sport. As they left the mall, Jack was surprised to find that he'd actually had a good time. That evening, there was wine and more conversation. Rachel took Jack's bed, leaving him and Kirsten to make whatever arrangements they chose. The two of them joked about Rachel trying to pair them up again. 
Eventually, Kirsten took the couch in the living room while Jack crawled into a sleeping bag on the kitchen floor. But that was only after talking till three in the morning. Rachel and Kirsten left the next afternoon, but Jack felt cleansed by their visit. He stayed in touch with Kirsten by email. It was casual. Not romance, but a knowing friendship. In the next few months, Kirsten got job interviews with several colleges and universities. She accepted a position on the Oregon coast. She sent Jack pictures of the school. It was directly on the ocean. It even had a beach. Kirsten said she'd always liked the water. She teasingly reminded him of their times at the pond. But when Jack saw Kirsten's pictures of the Pacific, all he could think of was dumping the ray gun into the sea. He could drive out to visit her, rent a boat, sail out to deep water. No. Jack knew nothing about sailing, and he didn't have enough money to rent a boat that could venture far offshore. How many years have I been preparing? he asked himself. Didn't I intend to be ready for any emergency? Now I have an honest-to-God mission, and I'm useless. Then Kirsten sent him an emailed invitation to go sailing with her. She had access to a seagoing yacht. It belonged to her grandparents, the ones she'd visited on Vancouver Island just before she and Jack broke up. During her trip to the island, Kirsten had gone boating with her grandparents every day. At the start, she'd done it to take her mind off Jack. Then she'd discovered she enjoyed being out on the waves. She'd spent time with her grandparents every summer since, learning the ins and outs of yachting. She'd taken courses. She'd earned the necessary licenses. Now Kirsten was fully qualified for deep-water excursions. And as a gift to wish her well on her new job, Kirsten's grandparents were lending her their boat for a month. They intended to sail down to Oregon, spend a few days there, then fly off the to tour Australia. When they were done, they'd return and sail back home. But in the meantime, Kirsten would have the use of their yacht. She asked Jack if he'd like to be her crew. When Jack got this invitation, he couldn't help being disturbed. Kirsten had never mentioned boating before. Because she was living in their hometown, most of her email to Jack had been about old high school friends. Jack had even started to picture her as a teenager again. He'd spent a weekend with the grown-up Kirsten, but all her talk of high school people and places had muddled Jack's mental image of her. The thought of a bookish teenage girl captaining a yacht was absurd. But that was a lesser problem compared to the suspicious convenience of her invitation. Jack needed a boat. All of a sudden, Kirsten had one. The coincidence was almost impossible to swallow. He thought of the unknown aliens who made the ray gun. Could they be influencing events? If the ray gun was intelligent, could it be responsible for the coincidence? Kirsten had often spent time near the gun. On their first visit to the pond, she and Jack had lain half-naked with the gun in Jack's backpack beside them. He thought of Kirsten that day. So open, so vulnerable. The gun had been within inches. Had it nurtured Kirsten's interest in yachting? Her decision to get a job in Oregon? Even her grandparents' offer of their boat? Had it molded Kirsten's life? So she was ready when Jack needed her. And if the gun could do that, what had it done to Jack himself? This is ridiculous, Jack thought. The gun is just a gun. It doesn't control people. It just kills them. Yet Jack couldn't shake off his sense of eeriness about Kirsten as well as the ray gun. All these years, while Jack had been preparing himself to be a hero, Kirsten had somehow done the same. Her self-improvement program had worked better than Jack's. She had a boat. He didn't. Coincidence or not, Jack couldn't look a gift horse in the mouth. 
he told Kirsten he'd be delighted to go sailing with her. Only later did he realize that their time on the yacht would have a sexual subtext. He broke out laughing. I'm such an idiot. We've done it again. Like that day at the pond, Jack had only been thinking about the gun. Kirsten had been thinking about Jack. Her invitation wasn't a carte blanche come on, but it had a strong hint of, let's get together and see what develops. Where Kirsten was concerned, Jack had always been slow to catch the signals. He thought, obviously the ray gun keeps dulling my senses. This time Jack meant it as a joke. Summer came. Jack drove west, with the ray gun in the trunk of his car. The gun's safety was on, but Jack still drove as if he were carrying nuclear waste. He'd taken the gun back and forth between his hometown and university many times, but this trip was longer, on unfamiliar roads. It was also the last trip Jack ever intended to make with the gun. If the gun didn't want to be thrown into the sea, perhaps it would cause trouble. But it didn't. For much of the drive, Jack debated how to tell Kirsten about the gun. He'd considered smuggling it onto the boat and throwing the weapon overboard when she wasn't looking, but Jack felt that he owed her the truth. It was overdue. Besides, this cruise could be the beginning of a new relationship. Jack didn't want to start by sneaking behind Kirsten's back. So, he had to reveal his deepest secret. Every other secret would follow. What happened to Deanna, what had really been on Jack's mind that day at the pond, what made first love go sour. Jack would expose his guilt to the woman who'd suffered from the fallout. He thought, she'll probably throw me overboard with the gun. But he would open up anyway, even if it made Kirsten hate him. When he tossed the ray gun into the sea, he wanted to unburden himself of everything. The first day on the boat, Jack said nothing about the ray gun. Instead, he talked compulsively about trivia. So did Kirsten. It was strange being together, looking so much like they did in high school, but being entirely different people. Fortunately, they had practical matters to fill their time. Jack needed a crash course in seamanship. He learned quickly. Kirsten was a good teacher. Besides, Jack's long-standing program of herodom had prepared his mind and muscles. Kirsten was impressed that he knew Morse code and had extensive knowledge of knots. She asked, Were you a Boy Scout? No. When I was a kid, I wanted to be able to untie myself if I ever got captured by spies. Kirsten laughed. She thought he was joking. That first day, they stayed close to shore. They never had to deal with being alone. There were always other yachts in sight, and sailboats, and people on shore. When night came, they put into harbor. They ate in an Ocean View restaurant. Jack asked, So, where will we go tomorrow? Where would you like? Up the coast, down the coast, or straight out to sea? Why not straight out? said Jack. Back on the yacht, he and Kirsten talked long past midnight. There was only one cabin, but two separate fold-away beds. Without discussion, they each chose a bed. Both usually slept in the nude, but for this trip they'd both brought makeshift pajamas consisting of a t-shirt and track pants. They laughed at the clothes, the coincidence, and themselves. They didn't kiss goodnight. Jack silently wished they had. He hoped Kirsten was wishing the same thing. They talked for an hour after they turned out the lights, becoming nothing but voices in the dark. The next day, they sailed due west. Both waited to see if the other would suggest turning back before dark. Neither did. The farther they got from shore, the fewer other boats remained in sight. By sunset, Jack and Kirsten knew they were once more alone with each other. No one in the world would stop them from whatever they chose to do. 
Jack asked Kirsten to stay on deck. He went below and got the ray gun from his luggage. He brought it up into the twilight. Before he could speak, Kirsten said, I've seen that before. Jack stared at her in shock. What? Where? I saw it years ago, in the woods back home. I was out for a walk. I noticed it lying in a little crater, as if it had fallen from the sky. Really? You found it too? But I didn't touch it, Kirsten said. I don't know why. Then I heard someone coming and I ran away. But the memory stayed vivid in my head. A mysterious object in a crater in the woods. I can't tell you how often I've tried to write poems about it, but they never work out. She looked at the gun in Jack's hands. What is it? A ray gun, he said. In the fading light, he could see a clump of seaweed floating a short distance from the boat. He raised the gun and fired. The seaweed exploded in a blaze of fire, burning brightly against the dark waves. A ray gun, said Kirsten. Can I try it? Sometime later, holding hands, they let the gun fall into the water. It sank without protest. Long after that, they talked in each other's arms. Jack said the gun had made him who he was. Kirsten said she was the same. Until I saw the gun, I just wrote poems about myself, overwritten, self-absorbed pap like every teenage girl. But the gun gave me something else to write about. I'd only seen it for a minute, but it was one of those burned-into-your-memory moments. I felt driven to find words to express what I'd seen. I kept refining my poems, trying to make them better. That's what made the difference. I felt driven, too, Jack said. Sometimes I've wondered if the gun can affect human minds. Maybe it brainwashed us into becoming who we are. Or maybe it's just stone soup, Kirsten said. You know the story? Someone claims he can make soup from a stone, but... What he really does is trick people into adding their own food to the pot. Maybe the ray gun is like that. It did nothing but sit there like a stone. You and I did everything, made ourselves who we are, and the ray gun is only an excuse. Maybe, Jack said. But so many coincidences brought us here. You think the gun manipulated us because it wanted to be thrown into the Pacific? Why? Maybe even a ray gun gets tired of killing. Jack shivered, thinking of Deanna. Maybe the gun feels guilty for the deaths it's caused and wanted to go someplace where it would never have to kill again. Deanna's death wasn't your fault, Kirsten said. Really, Jack, it was awful, but it wasn't your fault. She shivered, too, then made her voice brighter. Maybe the ray gun orchestrated all this because it's an incurable romantic. It wanted to bring us together, our own personal matchmaker from the stars. Jack kissed Kirsten on the nose. If that's true, I don't object. Neither do I. She kissed him back. On the mouth. Far below, the ray gun drifted through the cold black depths. Beneath it, on the bottom of the sea, lay wreckage from the starship that had exploded centuries before. The wreckage had traveled all the way from Jupiter. Because of tiny differences in trajectory, the wreckage had splashed down thousands of miles from where the ray gun landed. The ray gun sank straight toward the wreckage, but what the wreckage held, or why the ray gun wanted to rejoin it, we will never know. We will never comprehend aliens. If someone spent a month explaining alien thoughts to us, we'd think we understood. But we wouldn't.
There you go. Don't forget, copyright is James Allen Gardner. James, thank you so much for that. Ray Sizemore, sir, I owe you a drink. Thank you so much for that. Next up, it's been six months. He's back. He's mean. He's fighting fit. (laughs) And I'm back. In case you've just joined us in the last six months, this is Matthew Sanborn-Smith, and you're listening to my sofa thing, The Fiction Crawler, in which I scour the realms of electric literature out there and bring back a wheelbarrow full of the choicest pieces. Oh, you angry villagers, I can't even begin to apologize for depriving you of me for so long, so I won't try. This particular episode is my own microcosmic then and now, as I have three oldies and three newishies. But I'm not asking you to vote, I'm expecting you to embrace them all. I normally save the best for last, but I've got so many great stories I'll have to mention all of them last, so the good news is we're already almost finished. I had to go back and listen to the old fiction crawlers to find out what the heck it is I actually do on this thing. I noticed a couple of recurring themes while listening to the ghosts of crawlers past. One, I usually apologize for being away so long. Check. And two, I usually mention one or two stories from Strange Horizons. About to check. It's just a great damn magazine. The Man Who Lost the Sea by Theodore Sturgeon was originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction back in 1959, but it can also be found at Strange Horizons right now. It's a story about a guy in a pressure suit, mostly buried in the sand, looking at the sky. No, really. There's also a kid with a thing for air and spacecraft. Did I mention the buried man can't get his head to work right? You'll feel a bit of that yourself as time and viewpoint slowly morph until you're not exactly sure what you're reading anymore. Just go with it. Let the tide of the narrative take you out and track that strange satellite among the stars with the old man as you track a lifetime along with him and the monster that has stalked him and is stalking him now. Man, when Sturgeon gets rolling, the poetry of his prose takes you and you're driving through beautiful landscapes that no camera will ever capture with the top down and the wind blowing through your mind. You just go with it as the Sandman tries to make sense out of clues which point to nonsense, as he tries to collect himself into something coherent. Old Teddy is going to pick you up, and you're going to be carried without even knowing it, and when he sets you down at the end, you'll find yourself telling him, Wow, thanks for the ride. Before you leave Strange Horizons, check out The Blue Wonder by Chris Camerad. In it, we follow the average and incredible life of Henry Givens, a black man born in the American South in the mid-50s. Henry's got a special heart, and with it, he can fly and has an electrifying touch. Henry becomes the world's only superhero. This story, like the last, bounces back and forth a bit over the course of his life. I guess the editors over there like that sort of story. Ooh, make a note of that, Maddie. We take in the events of Henry's life, large and not so large, and what we walk away with is the impression of a life. Nothing especially heroic or four-color hands-on hips. He's a guy who works at a gas station and has problems being with women, and sometimes he goes out and flies after run-of-the-mill criminals, but we're never astounded by his feats. He's like a cop with an absolutely mundane life. The power of this piece comes from his pain and his joy, and how every strong thing he feels ultimately conspires against his fragile human self. The Blue Wonder is a good, warm superhero story without the angst and disillusionment we've all grown used to. We've had 25 years of post-Watchmen superhero stories. Now perhaps it's time for the post-post-Watchmen superhero stories. Let's lighten it up a bit with some retro-futurist speculation. I took in my very first Murray Leinster novel last month from LibriVox.org. A book called Space Tug it was, and I was impressed. Hard orbital adventure written before the time of Sputnik. Leinster is a solid writer with about a brain and a half stuffed into that head. So when I discovered a story called A Logic Named Joe by Murray Leinster at Bain.com, I knew I had to give it a try. 
And holy crap, there he went again, this time giving us his take on the internet from back in 1945, and it is not too far from ours. The most archaic thing is the narrator's hillbilly voice. My apologies to all the hillbillies listening out there who might find it quite contemporary. Leinster pushes his extrapolation past what we know as well, and lets havoc rain when a computer he names Joe makes the internet intelligent. What you get is a giant wish-granting machine, and folks, we humans can't even handle guns, much less giant wish-granting machines. Some of the people in this story have as much fun as the reader. Some have rather less so. Enough of that, it's downer time again. Don't worry, the last two are total fun. Also from Bane is one of my all-time favorite stories, the classic Light of Other Days by Bob Shaw. A London couple who are destined to become a triple try a Scottish holiday while on the edge of self-destruction. In the Highlands stand slabs of the engineering marvel known as Slow Glass, and they wonder if they can't get a deal buying it here at the source. Light can take years to pass through some panes of Slow Glass, and so after a piece is soaked in years of country scenery, you can install it in your window frame at home and watch those same grand natural vistas, even if you live in a crummy city apartment. The couple haggles with a farmer over a piece that's ten years thick, the purchase of which may be the very thing which breaks whatever's left of their love. And that's all I'll tell you, except that Shaw packs some powerful writing into a very little bit of space. So when you open the story fully, it just might burst from its confines and stick with you, as it has stuck with me for more than a decade, as if the tale itself were written on that same glass. And now, hold on to your headgear as I toss something totally new to the fiction crawler your way, Web Comics. The gang over at the recently defunct Around Comics podcast turned me on to the remarkable comic The Guns of Shadow Valley by David Wachter, James Andrew Clark, and Thomas Maurer, which can and will be found at gunsofshadowvalley.com. Now don't skip past this, this is not some dopey four-panel strip about coding dorks who play D&D. My apologies to all you coding dorks who play D&D and those who draw strips about them. I know there are a lot of you out there who listen to this show, but if you've got a problem with me, get in line behind the hillbillies. No, this is a beautifully rendered graphic novel posted online, a page a week. Now grab yourself, The Guns of Shadow Valley is a cross-genre jubilee, in large part western, but also science fiction, dark fantasy, and most especially superhuman. Jeezy Pete, this is fun. I can't tell you a lot about it because we're only now beginning Chapter 3, but we've got a sheriff putting together a super-powered posse, a rogue cybernetic confederate general with his own evil sideshow, super-strong Chinese railroad workers, gunfights on racing stagecoaches. Damn, just go look at it. I think it's necessary to discuss navigation by revolver through the story. Every page but the first and the last has two revolvers immediately below it marked next and back, and I think you can figure that out from there. Also, clicking the pictures makes them larger, making the word balloons easier to read and the gorgeous art even more enjoyable. Start clicking. You will find yourself cursing, just as I did, when you catch up with the creators and there's no next button to hit. Great stuff. Last of the last is the epic biographical notes to a discourse on the nature of causality with airplanes by Benjamin Rosenbaum by Benjamin Rosenbaum. No, that wasn't a mistake. If you're a fan of Podcastle, you may have already experienced this story, but you'll also know there's more than enough going on here for a second go-round. In fact, I'm linking to Rosenbaum's free PDF of his short story collection, The Ant King and Other Stories, as well as the Podcastle episode, because you may want to read it to catch all the details. It didn't take me long to realize that this was one of those stories. You know, one of the stories with a novel's worth of weird stuff crammed into a short story space. This tale is a bazaar of exotic sights and sounds, a packed thick alternate universe with intrigue and airship battles. The story never does touch the ground, though some of its characters might, and at rather high speeds. 
Most wonderfully, in the midst of all this high-flying adventure among Icelandic rajas, assassins, and sky pirates, the narrator, who is a writer, is trying to compose a story in his mind. He struggles with the physical and philosophical underpinnings of his universe, and in doing so creates his world's first science fiction and a window into something rather more familiar to us. This isn't something you merely read or listen to, but something you submerge yourself in. This story makes me tingly. My favorite Rosenbaum to date. All six of these stories are mind and or heart openers. Follow those links. And so we come to an even more endy end, namely that of this segment. I hope it won't take me another seven months to find six more polished baubles for your delight. But until that other whenever time, this is Matthew Sanborn Smith wishing that the people you don't like keep their hands to themselves and the people you do like don't. I am out. There you go. <laughs> We've waited too long, Matt. You can't keep the, you're there, fantastic. I'm going to ask Matt, because I haven't actually emailed him, but I'm going to ask Matt if I can play one of his Hairy Mango podcasts. You know, they're only kind of, <laughs> just like, be a little blip on our screens when you kind of play them over here. But I'm hoping he'll let us kind of play one, just so you can get a, a chance to go over to, you know, and listen to Hairy Mango, and then go over there and subscribe to his podcast. Because, honestly, you know, there's so many doom and gloom in the world. And when you listen to... The Hairy Mango podcast, you know what I mean? It's just three minutes of just sheer delight. You know, five minutes of just sheer delight. Excellent stuff. Do you know what I mean? And what I kind of love about it, Matt's obviously, and I'm not too sure, you know, I'm, I'm not too sure Matt's, how kind of Matt's set up at home, but I'm sure he's, he's there by himself, lives at home by himself. And he's doing his, rec- if people passed, you know, if you listen to his last one, people passed and looked into his window. He's singing his head off on this podcast. Do you know what I mean? You get locked up. You came to Whitburn, Matt, you get locked up, mate. <laughs> so please go over there and check out his podcast. I'll put a link on. There will be also links to all those stories that Matt said mentioned in Fiction Crawler 9. There's links there as well. Front of the website. There you go. Next up, we have cover art, little audio intro by S.P. Wilson. If you have a look at the artwork to accompany the main fiction, S.P. Wilson has very kindly done this little audio clip just to kind of give his thoughts and S.P. Wilson, sir. Hi. I just thought it would be interesting to talk for a few minutes about the illustration I did recently for Starship Sofa for James Allen Gardner's The Ray Gun, A Love Story. You know, talk about the inspiration for the illustration, um, the development of it and so on. Now, when I got this story off Tony, um, I was really quite excited. It was a quite a different sort of story, and it looked like the author was actually trying to do something a bit different. It's almost like he was um, trying to undermine what you expect out of love stories. I did go and have a, a look at some of his um, interviews and so on to see what he uh, see what James Allen Gardner was all about. And um, in his interviews, he talked about myths and archetypes, and also about not wanting to write the cheap and easy, you've seen it all before, sort of science fiction story that uh, science fiction as a genre is um, all too guilty of. So I was quite excited by what James Allen Gardner was trying to achieve. When I started to think of my initial ideas for the illustration, I knew that I wanted to have someone shooting the ray gun. You know, that seemed to be pretty much a given. After all, the story is called The Ray Gun, a love story. But I also knew that I wanted to make it a little bit different. But how to make it different, that's the tricky thing. I started looking at um, reference materials from comic artists. And I started, you know, deriving uh, my initial ideas from that sort of illustration. But I was thinking, what exactly is Jack, the main character in the story, zapping? 
with his ray gun. And I started to think about um, other sorts of artwork, classical art, you know, um, see if I could get some sort of inspiration from those as well. Um, I did actually find a good illustration of a couple of characters sitting by a, a pond, um, looking into the pond, you know, one character pining after the other, one character looking into the pond. And I thought that sort of encapsulated a little bit of what was going on in the story with Kirsten and Jack sitting by a pond. He's only interested really in looking at his reflection in the ray gun. This seemed to be quite an appropriate image to use. So I started building up my illustration using this sort of idea of Jack firing a ray gun through a representation of the sort of story that James Allen Gardner is trying to subvert. However, I realised after a little while that the illustration was just getting a bit too cluttered. There was just too much content to it, especially when you think about Starship Sofa's covers. They are in portrait format, whereas I thought that my idea would be best as um, landscape format, you know, a, a broad illustration rather than a tall illustration. So I moved on from that initial idea of Jack zapping through a painting or in some sort of illustration that represented a love story uh, and moved on. I did think about um, how to make the illustration a little bit more interesting. So I made the main character of my uh, my drawing look a bit more like James Allen Garden because it seems to be as much about him subverting your expectations of stories as it is about the actual story itself. I knew that I didn't really want to do a literal scene from the story. I wanted to go a bit beyond that. So I made the main character look a bit more like James Allen Gardner. And it was actually based upon a photo of me wielding this egg whisk. So there's certain elements of Jack, the main character, James Allen Gardner and me in there. Now, maybe at the back of my mind, I had uh, in mind Rudy Rooker's ideas on transrealism. You might know him as the author of Software and various other strange novels and short stories. He had this idea that an author should write himself into his work, either as some sort of implicit character, you know, not with his name, or explicitly as a named character in the story. So if you think about it, this illustration that I've done does have aspects of Jack, the main character, James Allen Gardner, the author, and me, the illustrator, in there, which, you know, is pretty strange if you think about it, really, and uh, what it reflects about my state of mind, you know, who knows, maybe I will get taken away in a padded van before too long. So I had this idea of the, the fused character firing a ray gun. And I want to think about, um, you know, what the character is doing with the ray gun. He's firing it, but what is the ray gun doing? And I experimented with various techniques. Now, I found one um, on the internet of um, this Polaroid effect that you can see on the cover, which seemed to me to encapsulate this idea that Jack is firing the ray gun at himself. It's almost like he's disintegrating himself while still retaining something of his own character in there as well. However, you know, the, I also needed a background for the image. Throughout the story, there'd been this whole idea of um, Jack and Kirsten meeting at a pond, going out into the ocean. Um, at the very start of the story, the ray gun comes from space, which has certain um, similarities to the ocean, if you think about it, you know, this whole sense of depth and uh, space navies and so on. So I tried to make the background a bit more like all of those, you know, to, to summarise ponds and oceans and the depth of space. So, you know, I worked on that quite a bit. And I also made sure that the character looked a little bit more like a superhero, because obviously throughout the story, um, it does refer to Spider-Man superheroes and so on. I hope that the actual illustration does come across quite well, that it does reflect some of the ideas that 
I think James Allen Gann is trying to get through in his story about people um, being influenced by the ray gun, almost like looking at it in as as a like a, a psychological mirror to show the character's development through the story and how the ray gun can influence you, how it can break you apart, but at the end you can come back together again. I was quite pleased with the illustration at the end of it. Obviously, I was a bit disappointed that I couldn't show Jack zapping through a representation of this sort of story. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm quite pleased with, with the final result. Right, well, I think I've ex- uh, discussed everything there. I hope you enjoyed the illustration and that my little chat and the illustration itself have helped illuminate some aspects of the story that uh, maybe you wouldn't have seen before. Thank you very much for listening. There you go, thank you so much. Hopefully we'll get some more work by S.P. Wilson. That is Oral Delights Show 132. Hope you enjoyed it. Next week we have Then and Now. Now I'll actually give you the results of the last Then and Now, which because of, I can't remember what, or because of the Hugo nominations, that's right. We haven't... Um, did the, the winner of that, so I will certainly do that. Don't forget, Twitter and Facebook, I am there. Keep a, keep an eye out. Come over and make, make friends with me, because I haven't got any friends. Until next week, I would just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.